Please note, this podcast contains discussions related to death and suicide. These topics, narratives, insights and discussions may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Dr Maddie Cassidy and I was a state pathologist in Ireland from 2004 to 2018. Welcome to my podcast, Life in Death, brought to you by Out. I'll be taking you through the world of pathology and forensics, digging deep into the roles of experts in crime, from the crime scene to the law courts. In today's episode, we'll be talking to criminal psychologist Kira Staunton, who's based in Cork. She helps the Gardaí by profiling perpetrators, although she has a special interest in sex-related crimes. Well, today we're going to be talking about something that I know precious little about. Um, I've been dealing with murder for, oh, almost 40 years. And in all that time, the one question I have never asked is why they did it. And I've always strayed away from that. That's nothing to do with me. That's not my role in, in murder investigation. But now that I'm not active on the scene anymore, that's the area that I'm now fascinated by. So, Paul, I think this is going to be interesting because today we've got uh, Dr. Kira Staunton. And uh, she is, a, I don't know really what the proper term these days is, forensic psychologist, criminal psychologist. But she's the one who probes into the minds of people who have done violent deeds um, and nasty things. Um, so I think we better watch what we're saying ourselves, just in case she starts to probe into our minds a bit. But uh, I think it's going to be a very interesting session today, Paul. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I certainly, like yourself, will be very careful with my P's and Q's in case at the end of it all, the police burst through the door and take you and I away somewhere into a very dark cell and eventually you and I will have to own up to a significant amount of drink being consumed over the years. Anyway, Kira, it's lovely to meet you, even if it is remotely, and I'm going to pass you back to Mary and we're going to start interrogating you. Yeah, as I say, today we're talking to Dr Kira Staunton and um, she's based in Cork, uh, lovely Cork. Um, I probably will need subtitles. It's this one accent I've never got to grips with is a Cork accent. Um, it's a bit like the Glasgow accent. We speak very, very quickly and um, only the people in the know know what we're talking about. So um, uh, we've got that that little hurdle, a Glasgow woman and a, and a Cork woman having to have a discussion. Um, now, you, you are a, a lecturer in Cork. You're involved in the um, adult continuing edu- education, which in itself is fascinating. But can you tell us a little bit about what your role is and um, how you got into um, psychology and criminal psychology and forensic psychology in particular? Good. Well, good morning, first of all. And first of all, the first fallacy is I'm not a mind reader. No psychologist is. So you don't have to watch your P's and Q's. <laughs> That's always that's always the first thing people say. They need to be careful about what they say. Because we're, but what we do certainly do is analyse. So analyse your behaviour, what you say and how you say it. So you're right, Mary. I work in the Centre for Adult Continuing Education in UCC. And it's through that centre that I deliver a course in forensic and criminal psychology. Now, you know, I've never really identified this point in time that drew me to this. 
it was always there when I was in school and people were thinking, you know, what will we do when we're after school, medicine, lawyer, whatever. Forensic psychology was always something that attracted me. Now, there wasn't that term didn't exist at the time, but there was a pivotal moment. And you might laugh and my students laugh. It's the it's the movie Silence of the Lambs. And it's Clary Starling and she's in Quantico. And here you have this young FBI recruit being launched in to investigate a very heinous crime. And we all know the story of Hannibal Lecter. And at that time, I think like most people, that absolutely fascinated and terrified me in equal measures. And I think that's the seed, genuinely was the seed that attracted me, not to psychology in itself, but to criminality and forensic psychology. So that set me on a path. I came to UCC. I have a degree in applied psychology from UCC. Um, and after that, I studied at postgraduate level from the University of Leicester, a master's in forensic and criminal psychology. And there were a number of really important people along that path that really inspired me. So Professor John Horrigan in UCC, he at the time was the only person looking at forensic psychology because psychology is a huge discipline. Forensics is only a very small part of it, a bit like you and your pathology. You know, people study medicine, very few go into probably the pathology side. The same with psycho forensic psychology. M loads of people study psychology, but they tend to move into clinical, counselling, educational. Very, very few people into forensic. And there was no... A route for forensic psychology in Ireland at that time. So I studied in the UK in Leicester's uh, in Leicester, received my master's. I came, I, you know, I was back in Cork, and I went on to do my PhD in forensic psychology. And I had a wonderful mentor at the time, Sean Hammond. He had worked in Broadmoor in the secure unit, and he and his wife were both forensic psychologists. So I was so lucky. It was just an opportune time. And he had established a small group of researchers in the School of Applied Psychology. We were all investigating areas of, of criminality. Um, my own area was in sexual deviance, crimes of a sexual nature, especially women who um, maybe uh, commit crimes of child abuse or uh, pedophilia. Um, so this was a really exciting time. In, in my world in forensic psychology. We did have a master's program at that time. So students, once you study psychology, you move in at postgraduate level, um, but that's long since gone. But it was at that time I set up this diploma course because I recognized that there were so many people for whom this knowledge would be so valuable to their line of work. And they didn't need to be psychologists. They were people like you, people like GPs, people, especially people working with the police, lawyers, solicitors, people working with young people, even teachers. So I set this course up. It's a very niche course and it has been going ever since, nearly 20 years. And uh, every two years I, I have a cycle come in or a group of people, largely professionals, but also those who are just really fascinated in this area, the people who watch the TV programs, read the books, so on and so forth. So you get that lovely mix then of the armchair psychologist right through to, you know, the detective level professional. So it's a fantastic course. I love it. It's brilliant and just really meet really great people. Yeah, I think it was a bit like when in, when I was back in Glasgow, we set up a, a diploma course in forensic medicine and we assumed that it would be, you know, the local GPs would toddle along and because they might get called out to, a you know, an unusual death. And we thought 
I'll maybe run for a year or so. And by that time, we'll have exhausted all the GPs. And then suddenly, as you say, we were having crime writers. We had lawyers, we had judges, you know, we had policemen. We'd fight, and we were going, wait a minute, you know, are these people really interested in it? And, and obviously your course is the same. You don't really appreciate the people it will attract and you hope you're attracting the right people. <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. And every year you think, you know, I thought the same thing. I thought this would be ideal for the police. Uh, and But as you say, Ireland is small. I said, you know, this will slowly burn out, you know, there and you get a high profile case and suddenly there's an interest again. But actually what's really interesting in, in all my years delivering this course and lecturing on these topics, this notion that the media puts out there that people are fascinated doesn't really translate into people coming to pursue a course of study, actually. Um, so you really do get those people who genuinely are fascinated. And those, again, numbers are quite small. I mean, I remember when I was doing my own PhD and there was only a few of us, as I say, this research programme, we had to be careful about what we were speaking in the tea room. You know, other psychologists, they didn't want to hear about this area. You know, it's like the dirty area. Who wants to know about rapists, murderers, child abusers, deviant? You know, that isn't psychology in the fullness of psychology. But for those of us who are interested in it, um, it, it's everything about psychology. And it's really where you get to apply psychology um, in all its glory and for all its faults and failings. We certainly don't have all the answers, but it's a way to start unpacking some of these people and some of these crimes that have been committed. And for all the reasons that you say, because I think most people, it does terrify us. It shocks us. It angers us in many ways, you know, when we see what one human being can do to another. Um, and it can be utterly tragic as well. There's no doubt about that. And your colleagues in, in the tea room who, 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 who were avoiding you like the plague from the sound of things, did while they would talk about patients and share and you know maybe casual information about patients, did they feel that the side of psychology that you were dealing with was so utterly appalling to them that they really didn't want to hear anything about it, or were they even you know so remotely interested uh, you know, eavesdropping? I think well, you know what's interesting. There were a couple of people, a couple of colleagues who a couple of years later who had qualified, let's say, and are now working as especially one individual as a highly qualified counselling psychologist. And he, funnily enough, ended up working in the prison service. So he now was working with clients, but in his capacity as a counsellor. And he would always say to me, he wished he had studied the forensic side of things because it made perfect sense. So, you know, we operate, unfortunately, I think, in sometimes little silos. And what, by doing that, we sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture because you're absolutely right. People, so clinicians will work with children, adults, many of whom have mental health issues. And I would question even now in Ireland, you know, if they had maybe even some of that forensic training. Now, some do, but not all do to maybe to, to be willing to look at some of the darker side of things. I think they might come to sometimes different judgments in their appraisal of, of the individual. Um, now, I must be careful about how I phrase that and be diplomatic. But, you know, I think that kind of, you know, this notion that even as a psychologist, I would appreciate or I would love to study psychiatry to really fully understand that lens. And I say this to my students, as a psychologist, you're a pathologist, you're a GP, we all have particular lens through which we view human beings. And actually, we 
The biggest mistake we can make is to think that our lens is the only lens, actually, and that our lens is the correct lens, because that is a total fallacy. We have to appreciate the complexity of human beings in the fullness of their psychological health or ill health, as it may be. And I think GPs, um, because GPs, certainly in Ireland, are, you know, the the gateway actually into all the services so be it into mental health services potential forensic services you know so the gps would you know are are, how are they supposed to understand the fullness of you know psychiatry or the fullness of psychological ill ill health in a 30 to 50 to 60 second consultation you know good gps will have built up over time a rapport with the person and that's exactly what a psychologist does too you can't make an appraisal of somebody cold. It's you get to know a person um, over time. The three things that a psychologist investigates, and it's quite simple actually, um, are your emotions, your emotional life, which is brilliant in your book, Mary, because you're devoid of all of that. You're dealing with the hard, cold body. And a psychologist is, is at the exact opposite end of that spectrum. We're dealing in that messy world of that emotional life of an individual that is oftentimes hidden, but can wreak havoc with the person that can push somebody into that second point, which is their behaviours. How do they behave? So my students and I, we we look at, I say to them, again, the biggest mistake that armchair psychologists make is that we judge people, all of us do this, based on behaviours. So how you appear, how you are behaving, how you're speaking. But that's only one part of the puzzle. And it's a a big mistake to just simply make those judgments in the absence of the two other parts of that kind of conundrum. So the emotional life and the third very important aspect that you want to get some understanding of is how the person is thinking, their cognitions because we don't all think in the same way. And that can be very, very revealing to a person's state of mind if you understand how are they thinking about this? What logic patterns are they using? Are they using a maladaptive form of logic? You know, so the kinds of thoughts that drive potential behaviours, these are the keys, these are the clues that we look for in trying to build up a psychological profile of any, of any kind of person, regardless of the field that you're working on. So it's that those three key things and we spend module after module, case after case, trying to identify the thought patterns, the behavioural patterns and the emotional life. And that's very true of mental health as well. When those three things are working well together, you have somebody who is fairly psychologically healthy. But if one of those things is awry a bit, either the emotional part or the cognitive part, you know, you may start to develop kind of issues or problems that, that, that can be helped if they're caught early enough or if the person has enough insight themselves to proclaim what I'm thinking here, this isn't right or what I'm feeling isn't right. But not everybody has that ability. And, and that's that's the area of psychology which leads us into mental health and mental ill health. Well, Mary, what do you think of that? <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, Kira's quite right. I mean, I, I, when I'm dealing, with, I'm dealing with a body, so I, I don't get emotionally involved with that body, and it's, uh, you know, uh, it's it's purely down to to you know examining the body and and making my own you know sort of 
thoughts and what I think ha- might have happened. But um, I don't know the person and therefore I don't know what their life was like beforehand. I don't know what their state of mind was at the time. And um, so I can I can actually walk away from it. If you're getting so deep into the mind of somebody and it's not a very healthy mind, how do you then distance yourself from that? How do you walk away from it at the end of the day? I would find, you know, I, I think that's, people always ask me, how can you do what you do? And I can do what I do because I've got no invested interest in this person other than to just dis- discover how they well, died. look, the beauty of working in academia is just that. I'm working at it almost partly removed. And, you know, at the start of my career, I did face that kind of conundrum. Did I want to move into clinical practice, let's say, um, especially in the UK where you'd work in a secure unit, you'd work in a prison, um, or would I remain in academia? And of course, life happens. Um, I got married, I fell pregnant. um, And of course, there's nothing like a beautiful bundle of joy in your life to help with those kind of decisions did I really want to be going and working in a prison every day um or would I remain in academia so it but but also that wasn't just the only reason because I'm not closed off to working in clinical practice I realized that I can have a far greater impact through the courses that I run because of the people I'm meeting because they are the ones who are dealing at the cold face with these individuals. And I have a far greater impact to multiple individuals in helping the work that they do, which is so rewarding and so beneficial. As I say, especially when it's detectives, especially when it's people who work with young people, social workers, to give them those extra toolkits to help them in their job. Because at the end of the day, my motto is prevention is better than cure. So anything that we can do to enhance clinicians' ability to deal with vulnerable young people, you know, to, to stop them in that trajectory that may end up in a life of crime. Um, and I've, I've wonderful examples of, of how that plays out in practice. But we also run, I lecture on another programme in adult education, which is why the Centre for Adult Education is such an important centre in the university, because we attract learners of all types, the non-traditional students, the adults, people who are returning to education, but we have a course in mental health and that attracts people like that who have lived a life of mental ill health, who have been through the services, but are now by coming and educating themselves around their own mental lives. It has far more of an impact on them than any kind of medication that they have been on or any kind of stay in a psychiatric service. So education I just is so key. It's so fundamental to everybody's life. We can all learn. So We might be studying topics on criminality, but actually, by getting to that point, we have to cover all of those aspects from from childhood, child rearing, and unpack and that evolving kind of trajectory that leads somebody in one path versus another. So at the end of the day, we might all learn lessons as to how to be better parents, how to be better citizens, you know, and all of these little dots join up to me to a healthier kind of society. So so that really is the reason. So I can step away very easily because I'm not at the cold face. I am not in prison. I am not in the psychiatric units. I'm doing it from a very much kind of research informed, evidence-based lecturing, teaching side of the coin, if that makes sense. Which is, which is much more enjoyable. And the people who would be working at the coalface in, in prison, say, do they reach out to you, Kira, uh, and, and uh, both for advice, uh, insights, suggestions? 
uh, and do they use that information within the criminal justice system? Um, not a lot. The, the way the prison system is set up in Ireland, you've got, you know, the prison system will have psychological services and those psychological services are informed by highly trained clinical um, psychologists and counselling psychologists. So forensic psychology really hasn't caught on in Ireland the way it has in the UK. As I said, you can't train to be a forensic psychologist in Ireland. The master's programme that I was involved with, with Dr. Sean Hammond at the time, and that was the only gateway to becoming a professional forensic psychologist. Um, Now, the Psychological Society of Ireland does have a division of forensic psychology, but you will never see a post advertised in the prison service for a forensic psychologist. So they have their training and they roll out um, training, uh, but it's based on clinical psychological principles. Now, they'll be informed by some forensic parts, of course. Um, but the people who tend to come to me for advice, as I say, are more from the policing side. Um, I've had some prison officers actually come and do the course. So, again, that was fascinating because the, these are the guys who actually have such a real insight into the, the, the men under their charge because they're living and breathing. They're there 12 hours a day. What better person to know this individual than the person who's interacting them. You get far more insight, actually. And I thought that was wonderful for them to take the course and to see actually the value that they could have on that person's life. And we have, I have taught in Cork Prison, actually. We rolled out one of our courses and I delivered a module. And again, that was so interesting. I was teaching to these men who are serving, you know, life sentences for murder. Um, And just so interesting how they too could get such value by understanding some of life's events their own histories and and I was you know when you build up a rapport I was able to say to these men I said you know you do know that you are the kind of person that when I'm teaching on the UCC campus that we're talking about and you embody all this kind of tragedy and trauma in your background and you unfortunately are serving a life sentence and very sadly there's a family out there suffering the consequences of the crime you've committed but yet as a person you can find the redeeming qualities you can see how this person could potentially upon release be an upstanding citizen if they're given the right kind of supports chances and that's the sad part I think of uh, you know uh, of crime in its in its the, the bigger sense of the word most people who work in the prison system, in probation, in social services, in protective services, we'll say for most individuals, really, again, the issues start in childhood. And and for me, again, that's why being good parents, all of that just really is the fundamental part to, to preventing some of this escalating or becoming this inevitable kind of tragedy of life's events that can lead somebody into that that moment because most homicides are highly emotional events. And Mary references this in her book, and we use the term perhaps that frenzied attack, and as you say, that that's a real TV kind of term, but actually what it signifies is just that state of heightened emotional arousal. Nothing draws that out of you than emotion. And the key there is, at the opposite end, when you have a crime that has been committed completely devoid of emotion, actually those are the ones that are more psychologically interesting because now we're dealing with people 
who lack capacity to have emotion. And you might see that in their inability to express remorse. So some of the more interesting homicides in, in, in my kind of area are those ones. And here now we're moving into that area of, well, what kind of person is this? And I bring you back, how is this person thinking? Because we all we all have this reaction, God, how could somebody do that? And I say, well, from their perspective, how are they thinking? What's the reward here to lead us to the motivation? How are they feeling? If they have elements of psychopathy or a personality, which means that they don't experience an emotional life the way you and I do, it actually makes them very good predators because now they only have to rely on their logic. And if the logical solution is to get rid of this person, well, then the behavior is just that. It's just a behavior devoid of any guilt, devoid of any remorse, devoid of any worry of potentially spending the rest of your life in prison because I'm too clever for that. My emotions are not going to give me away because I don't have any. And this is the hidden part. You can't spot these people but retrospectively, by looking at crimes and cases, you certainly can see all the hallmarks of those kinds of crimes. Like the one case, Mary, you cover in your book, and it's the perfect example of that kind of crime, is the murder of Mary Goff by her husband, Colin um, Whelan. Do you remember that, that particular case? So here we had, in, in my view, here you had all of the hallmarks of, um, of a psychopath in terms of what we understand a psychopath being so the movies will portray these you know axe wielding mass murderers and these mad men as being psychopaths nothing could be further from the truth a true psychopath is somebody who goes about their life plays the facade this man had been with this woman for a very long time they were getting married there was a documentary on about this case and the police detective felt it was the most difficult case he had ever been involved in. Now, he didn't have the language to articulate what he was witnessing, but what he was witnessing was a very clever, cunning individual who was devoid of an emotional life, who was able to play the part of the husband. And if anyone looks at that documentary and you see the footage of the wedding, what immediately struck me was the, the girl's face. She did not look like somebody who was really entering into this marriage enthusiastically. They were just glimmers, but to me, they spoke volumes. Did she know something? Did she, she was going through this because you know you can get caught up and you know it's the marriage, but the seeds will have been there and she's very likely to have spotted them. He might've been able to hide them from all the extended family, but she might've seen possibly his controlling element, how he always gets what he wants. Did he insist on the marriage going ahead? Because what he was planning all along was he was in it for the long game. He had he wanted to take out the insurance on her life, which he did. He was already in another relationship, so he was leading a double life. So he was biding his time, waiting for the right moment. These are all the classic hallmarks of a psychopath. So we, you know, you mightn't spot them, but again, the way the detective spoke about that his the suspect. And everything about that case um, spoke volumes to me about here we have the classic psychopath. And he did murder his wife. Uh, Kira, um of course, you know, with my line of business, I'm coming across um, homicides on, on almost on a daily basis, awfully. Um, 
we don't we don't do offender profiling in in Ireland usually. I mean, as I say, we don't have serial killers. Um, I suppose in a way, Ireland has its own inbuilt. Uh, offender profilers. We've got Maureen at the end of the road who could probably tell you that that boy was going to come to no good and that she remembers his uncle Seamus who suddenly disappeared off to Canada under a cloud. So we, we in Ireland, we have this sort of um, nosiness and um, I suppose everybody knows what everybody's doing. So it's very difficult to, to hide in plain sight. Um, but there are other things that... Um, you as a forensic psychologist can offer the police apart from offender profiling. And even when they have a suspect in, in custody, there's many things that um, you can assist in uh, deciding whether somebody has a mental illness or not. And then therefore what the court should be doing with them and what should happen to them thereafter. The studies are actually mixed in terms of the value of, of profiling. Um, so yes, it's it's very seductive. It's that seductive area of forensic psychology and one that appealed to me. But when you understand where it was formed, so you have here, you have the 1970s America, you have all of these serial killers at large, so to speak, the ones we're all familiar with, Ted Bundy's, Jeffrey Dahmer. And at the same time, you have this little group within the FBI uh, Paul, uh, Robert Ressler uh, being one of the main protagonists, really understanding that actually psychology might have a part, a role to play in understanding these men. And he set about this study um, with the backing of the FBI. And thinking back on it now, um, the, the, the beauty of it was it was revelationary at the time. Let's ask these men. Let's talk to them, which is, of course, is a perfect mode of operation and method of inquiry from a psychological perspective, talking to people, interviewing them. So the whole breadth of profiling was that they interviewed 36 serial murderers at the time. And from that, they developed this notion of profiling that somehow you could understand based on what other serial killers have done. It might help investigating future unknown suspects. And they developed this kind of classification of serial killers as being organized or disorganized. And to put it very simply, the organized killer was likely to be somebody with elements of psychopathy, that calm, controlling individual who knew exactly what they were doing, how they were doing it. They were prepared for the crime they were about to commit versus the disorganized killer who's more likely to be suffering from a psychopathology of some sort, in which case the crime, as violent and as heinous as it is, has happened kind of spur of the moment. It's more opportunistic. It's less planned for. It's more messy, not just in very real physical terms, but in psychological terms. They may leave the uh, parts at the crime scene, which would makes it much easier for the, the, the police to catch them, so on and so forth. Now, so that was the birth of it. Now, over time profiling, um, and even prior to that, there was an attempt, there was a case um, uh, called the, the Mad Bomber, where an attempt was made to profile this unknown suspect uh, to a varying degree of success. So since then, really, profiling um, has been opened up to scrutiny and to proper scientific research. And actually, the results are mis mixed. So when you have good police detectives, actually, they are as likely as a profiler to get the facts of the case correct. If you were to measure outcome in terms of successful um, catching of the, of the suspect, if that was the ultimate measure, well then profiling has mixed results. 
where it is very helpful actually and the UK are very good at employing um, psych trained psychologists is in the kind of analysis of crime looking back at cold cases perhaps fresh eyes Professor David Cantor um, established a fantastic school in Liverpool at university level on statistical profiling. Again, looking at common trends among serial rape cases. And that kind of information is very useful to police detectives when you're trying to distinguish a suspect and how you limit that pool of suspects. So looking at the behavioral aspects of rape cases, can you can you link crimes together? So crime linkage is an important aspect. Or rule a case out as being committed by a different offender. So those are the main kind of tenets within, within profiling as we understand it today. Kira, um, of course, I, I've been dealing with murder for, for a long time. And um, uh, I know from working both in Scotland and in Ireland that the using forensic psychologist is not not the norm and that it's very rare that somebody like yourself would be called in because the police and the guardie have a certain suspicion about certain um, experts I mean I know when I came into Ireland and I would say oh I think we need somebody else with a bit more knowledge about this particular area than than I have and they would go oh god here she goes again another urologist and I think they get kind of you know a bit wary now, I, I know that in Ireland we don't see serial killers. Um, or they're very, very rare. I mean, I think we've had a few cases where there's been um, people working in concert, you know, killing a couple of people, but been caught very early on. And as I say, I think in Irish society, we have our own offender profilers living at the end of every street and in every village in Ireland because uh, Maureen knows that that boy was a bad one and he was always going to go to no good and his, his brother and his, his uncles and all the rest of it and I remember the time when the uncle Seamus was sent to Canada under a cloud and oh everybody could have known that that was the boy that was going to you know, do something bad and awful. Um, but I think that what people don't appreciate is that there's more than that that you can offer the offender profiling, like the Silence of the Lambs. Um, you can probably help. There, there was a case, the, the, the Colin Whelan case, that you could identify that person as being a psychopath just by watching the, t the television footage, the news um programs about without actually even having to interview him you had a very good take on who this man was and what he was and that could have been helpful to the police at the time when they were trying to work out how to deal with this person because it's quite difficult to deal with somebody like a psychopath um, and how how do we get them to perhaps think more about using other areas of expertise that might be of great assistance mm. to them yeah, well, I, the simple answer there is there a culture change, really, isn't it? I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We, we, we're not awash with serial killers in Ireland, but that's because we have such a good police force and a good detection rate for serious crime. So homicides tend to be solved. I would argue, and I talk to my students about, we have plenty of potential candidates for serial killings and you know, that would, in my view, certainly go on if they hadn't been caught because they fit the psychological profile, as you say. But lucky for us, they are already behind bars. Um, so but the profiling piece actually becomes very interesting almost after the fact. So, yes, you mentioned Colin Wheeler. Yes, that was easy for me because I know now that he 
is responsible for the crime. So that's more of a psychological autopsy and it's retrospective. And of course, the beauty with everything, when you look at it retrospectively, it's easy to spot these little clues. It's not so easy when you're doing it on the cold face. And that's where profiling has come in for some um, kind of disrepute. When it has been used over the years in the UK, um, there is always the risk and the police force will be very careful that if the psychologist or profiler says something that leads the investigation down a particular line of inquiry and it happens to be the wrong one, well, then that's an awful lot of wasted time, energy, effort, and more importantly, resources. And so the culture of police work is very much to follow the evidence, isn't it really? Not necessarily to go off in a kind of fanciful um, uh, storytelling into possible motivations. But you are right. I would feel certainly that we can offer some insight because we can offer some insight into the behaviours and what might have led to those behaviours. But more importantly, as I mentioned, the emotional state of mind of the potential unknown suspect, which may help them in ruling in or out other potential suspects. But statistics often tell us, especially crimes, we know that most women who are murdered are murdered by their husband's partners or ex-partners. So, you know, it's the very unusual case that you move outside that. So you don't really need a profiler to tell you that. That's going to be the immediate line of investigation. But after the fact, usually psychology plays a very important part when somebody has been convicted so risk assessment actually is the bread and butter work of forensic psychologists when they are working in a prison system that's when you really want to get to know the individual that's when their assessment of the person and their personality becomes relevant because how amenable is this person then to potential treatment how amenable is this person to expressing remorse for the actions that they have committed How amenable is this person if it's a crime of a sexual nature for the Building Better Lives programme that we run in Dublin for sex offenders? See, not everybody is there's this notion that, you know, we can treat somebody and they'll be fixed or not. But actually, it's a very complex um, system of assessing that person in the first place to figure out how suitable or amenable they are to treatment. Kira, if we go back to your, your description of the psychopath, the the concern listening to you is the the real psychopath is likely to enter into uh, cooperation with the in in the, the criminal the, the the prison psychologist and be the good and the best boy in the class while quietly plotting his next murder probably the psychologist uh, being the first victim does that does that concern can can you use your skills and intuition and assessments to get the behind the brain of the brain of the brain and a row of mirrors of this fella who who has got so many you know mindsets on how, how we can manipulate the situation? Or are we just going to have to take potluck and hope that some of them are sincere? Well, those are all the questions that we face and the challenges that we face in assessing individuals. So, I mean, so luckily, forensic psychology, you know, we are a scientific discipline and we've come a long way. So there are assessments that would be done. So we have the psychopathy checklist. It's a validated scale used around the world. But what's more interesting there, Paul, is that our prisons are not full of psychopaths. Actually, it's the complete opposite. Most psychopaths are out there among us. You are more likely to find a psychopath 
leading, being a CEO, running a big business, working in the banking sector, or dare I say it, as a politician. So individuals who have psychopathic tendencies can cause havoc. You know, they will be the bullies in the workplace because all of the same traits, what makes and what gives them this label of being a psychopath are things that also make them very good at what they do. And you can actually flip that coin. And there's a professor called David Cook, who's a wonderful man, and he talks about this successful psychopathy. It's when, if, imagine how successful you would be in life if you were free of that emotional baggage. If you know, and it's what we do in psychology. If you want to aim for the top, you have to, what's your vision? How do you get there? And if you can do that and not care about who you have to step over to get there, you become the bully in the workplace. But you need to, you need to manipulate the people above you. You need to sidle up to them. So you can be very charming to those individuals. You're using them all the time, but there's always a plan. So when a psychopath finds themselves in prison, it's usually because they have committed a crime, but you're right, they will be spotted through careful clinical observation, interviews and assessments. But the flip side of that is yes, the studies are mixed in terms of how amenable they are to treatment because the difference between mental ill health and a personality disorder is that a personality is the person's personality. You can't necessarily change that versus somebody who's suffering from mental ill health that is much more amenable to treatment um, and they might become more cooperative. Um, so there's a big, there's a big distinction there between this notion of psychopathy versus psychopathology and actually you know there's and there's a huge then mix of gray area there in between so let's not talk about the person who has a mental health issue but underlying that is a personality disorder actually so you talk about the mask or behind the mask this is where you get to some really interesting psychological clues so we're so quick to blame i think mental ill health for murders but actually a lot of the points i write about is actually you have to look past that and deeper and look at personality types. I can think of one or two psychopaths immediately who are doing very well in life, <clears throat> based on what you've just described. No names mentioned. No names mentioned, but I think we can all, when you understand there are 20 traits of psychopathy, and when you look at all those 20 traits, it's very easy to spot the people who have them. Yeah. yeah. Well, none <laughs> in this room. Of course not. <laughs> so how do we spot a killer? How do we spot when somebody is thinking about killing somebody not necessarily that they're a psychopath but when we talked about suicide ideation and everybody knows about that nowadays in psychiatry but there's the notion now of homicide ideation and how do people come to a psychiatrist or doctor their gp and I, th I can imagine paul you've seen thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people coming through your doors and i'm sure not one of them sat down and said well i've been thinking about killing the wife and if they did, your job would drop open and you would go, oh, really? And then you'd be, you know, scrabbling under the desk for that panic button that you've got. Uh, so how do we spot people and how do we deal with, with that situation? But, but, but I think that's exactly the place we do need to be, actually, Mary, is that where people, where we create a society whereby people who actually have such thoughts are able to express them free of the fear of ramifications because the thought is just that, it's a thought. And we need to be very conscious that that thought doesn't become the behavior. And those are two very distinct things. So you're right, if we start to treat homicidal ideation, 
the same way we do suicidal ideation, we might just have a chance of preventing some of these tragic cases. Because you're so right. Who is going to admit to that? You know, who is going to admit to the fact that I'm having these serious thoughts about killing my children? And in fact, not only have I been thinking of it, I've started to plan it. Very few people are going to express that. But it's exactly that that we do need them to express, just like what we've learned with those who have thoughts of suicide. Thinking of suicide is one of the biggest risk factors, as we know, for the behavior or for the carrying out the act. But people who have successfully been treated, having made suicide attempts, learn that that thought is the trigger. That's the triggering. It's the thinking. And again, this brings me back to those simple components of psychology. When somebody can start to develop an awareness and an insight that the thought is separate from the emotion. So I'm feeling so terrible in this life. You know, nothing. I'm, you know, everything is negative. We have this negative logic around everything we do. Our physiological system is depressed. So there's no medication, which is alleviating this depth of despair that I'm feeling but now my thinking is also warped those are the two trigger points that will lead to this tragic behavior so if we really could open up discussion about homicidal ideation and and express to people having the thought doesn't vilify you in fact having the thought and admitting to those thoughts this is exactly the moment where professionals could step in and help. And we've seen the utter tragedy of those kind of cases where that link is missing. And I would be very keen to see that happening much more readily. Normalising some of this, as abnormal as it is, as problematic as it is, if we can start, because you're even professionals themselves, as you say, your jaw might drop. What do you do with that? So we need appropriate training. We need professionals to recognise our GPs If somebody expresses that, we cannot wipe that under the rug. We have to deal with it. We have to help that person absolutely right now. This is the critical juncture so that it doesn't start to become more entrenched, more planned to the eventual act then. Do you think then there's there's a link or should we be making some link between suicidal ideation and then homicidal ideation? And I'm thinking about more of these cases where we've had a mother or a father killing their their children and then sometimes going on to commit suicide. Um, So do you think that once, if somebody has been treated for a mental illness and they've already expressed suicidal ideation, somebody should maybe say, well, have you ever thought of, you know, killing someone else? And um, and do, do... do we just bulk at that? Do we just say, no, I'm not going to ask that question because, good God, that's opening up a real can of worms. And that's precisely the question that absolutely that should be asked. The way now we are trained now and it's become acceptable and maybe not it's not as acceptable as we would like it to be for anybody to feel comfortable to ask that question. If somebody seems to be in despair, are you thinking of suicide? It's a direct question. And there was a fear that this might push the person into the act when actually the complete reverse is what happening. This gives that person, they've heard it now in the real world. It's not now something that's suddenly just in the depths of my mind, it has been expressed and maybe I can open up. And that is the first step. So absolutely, we need professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors to be able to ask that question. 
have you been thinking? Are you thinking of harming yourself? Are you thinking of harming anybody else in your family? And that's not the same as saying, you're a terrible person. How dare you think those thoughts? This is a real clinical way of getting just, and sometimes it's just that link. You just need something to pull that out of somebody. Otherwise, what do we do? It's internalized. It wreaks havoc, as I say, and then that just starts, that escalates the emotional intensity around these thoughts. And then the self-loathing for having the thoughts in the first place, which adds to the person's feeling of complete inadequacy and as a failed human being. And that's the spiral um, into this kind of morbid um, kind of thinking around the only way out starts starts to become that very logical solution. Um, so, you know, we, we do need to open up that can of worms. Absolutely. Would we have the resources to explore all of that, though, Kira? I don't know, Paul. I think there would. Uh, I, that's not something I can answer. I mean, when you think of it, it is just a question. What we need then is if that person expresses it, to be able to be referred to the appropriate services. And that's where psychological services um, are key and mental health services are key. Sadly, I, I know we're not at the place that we should be in terms of mental health services um, in Ireland, but then there are other voluntary sectors. You know, we have some great charities that again, just that referral pathway. Um, but clearly, I mean, this is untested there's not a lot of work or research around this notion of homicidal ideation just like suicidal ideation it's not that new in terms of research and understanding it but what we have recognized is that by tapping into it can be very revealing and very helpful especially for people then who go for cognitive behavioral therapy and that's exactly what that does it breaks down that link of thinking feeling and the emotion. And so somebody can say, where as soon as I have this thought, the thought, if they start to creep in, now is the time I need to get help. I need to make that call. I need to talk to my husband or my or somebody just to express it. But we're not we're not at that place as a society, as Mary says, for all those obvious reasons. That's not a comfortable conversation. That's not anything somebody wants to hear. And I think that's such the sad juxtaposition in cases, especially cases of familicide and murder-suicide. Often in cases of this, you have parents who absolutely adore their children and love. And this is the tragedy of it, really, that they're at some point, again, the solution here is for us all to uh, be out of this world. It's kind of an altruistic sense of doing right by their child and, and how sad, how tragic really is, is that, you know, we as a society are failing people if, if this is what, what we're left with. That's my view. In a way, that's a, a problem that we've created ourselves because in, instead of, as you say, recognising this and recognising that perhaps we could have intervened at an earlier stage and that these people are killing not because they hate uh, it, it's complete opposites because they love too much in a way. And maybe we should be, the, the press headlines should be that rather than vilifying these people because then it, it other people who maybe had had those thoughts just maybe hide them and then with tragic consequences because it's unfortunately it's happened too often in Ireland and it really is, you know, it, it's something that, I feel very strongly, and I'm sure you do, Paul, because you've you've 
done a lot with you know mental health services as well that this is something that we should really be working towards doing something about that it's an awful well tragedy. i have to say that on the basis of 40 years in, in, in general practice uh, if the number of people who came to me over the years expressing both suicidal and homicidal ideation and if if there was the any sort of intervention that would because none of them actually went ahead and 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 killed anyone though i've had unfortunately at least four or five people who committed suicide um i just wonder how many do we stop moving to the the next stage the the the, uh, the physical act by being interventionist at, at a say general practice level it's, it's impossible to prove you know we don't you can never prove that you prevented something but it shouldn't stop us, I suppose, from trying. And again, this is the, you know, the preventative strategies rather than the cure. And you're absolutely right, Mary. You see cases like this, they happen and it's the same kind of trajectory. It's on the news, especially in Ireland. You know, it's a small country and everybody talks about it for several days, but then it's gone, you know, and all it does are there are two trends in my view, either the issue of mental ill health raises its head and uh, and which which often does a disservice to the, all the other people who suffer from mental ill health because suddenly now they feel, oh my God, am I capable of this? And that it drives it underground again. When actually, you're right, we should be able to talk about these things in a broader context um, and move it beyond those head, headline grabbings, you know, because then as soon as you introduce this concept of mental health, that's seen as explaining it. Uh, sure, you know, that 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 was the problem, but actually it may not have been the problem because there are two different. We also haven't touched upon the other kind of murder suicides where I would argue that, again, um, not like the altruistic love situation, like that the mother or the father who has that tragic, uh, you know, wish um, to die and to take the children. There's also the more sinister side. And I think this feeds into gendered violence where um, revenge is also a motivation. And we've had recent cases here where that has raised its head and there, the homicidal ideation, what's driving that isn't any sense of sense of altruistic love. It's actually a sense of entitlement and a sense of revenge. And what better way now to punish this person than to be out of this world and take the thing that that person loves the most so we need to have though we need to you know have those conversations that that too is a possibility and not wash that under the carpet by saying again possibly mental health that wasn't diagnosed he was depressed mm, that doesn't often cut the mustard for me i think there are other issues and again retrospectively when you look at some of these cases you can start to identify what interests me is how does this person behave in their day to day life you know, what clues can we glean from that? Um, you know, nothing predicts future behavior better than past patterns of behavior. That's a very kind of simple analogy to use. We don't suddenly wake up one day and start behaving or thinking or feeling very, very differently to how we did yesterday, unless you've had a head injury or some kind of trauma that has an impact on the brain. By and large, we are creatures of habit. So how we go about our day-to-day -day lives can be very revealing, even in the context of something as heinous as, um, as a murder. So again, those clues that might um, help uh, reveal some of the psychological thinking behind the crime, understanding that 
um, is key to trying to change that into preventative measures. But that's the hard part, isn't it? That that is the task. That is the challenge. But that, what can we do with that knowledge and transform it into a useful tool, for example, or a useful intervention strategy? Kira, can you think of any particular retrospective case that, that highlights the points you're, you've been making there? Well, the one that comes to my mind is the very tragic case in West Cork of little um, Clarissa. Now, it's you know, a decade, over a decade ago at this point, um, and her father, Martin, who took... Clarissa's life and his own life by drowning. Now, when you look at that case, he was married to a young American girl. Everything about that case is, you know, movie kind of stuff. But what I find most revealing in that particular case is is the background. I would even go right back, if I could, to the meeting of these two individuals. Here you have a young girl coming from America, I don't know her particular background. I would like to know. I get the sense that there was an absent father figure. So to me as a psychologist, that's interesting, let's just say. So she's young. She's come to Ireland. She's only 17 years of age. I would think any 17-year-old is vulnerable. They may not see themselves as being vulnerable, but they are impressionable. So here she meets this farmer. He's much older. He's in his 40s. He's a bachelor. Again, I would like to know, you know his background. Why? What? But he has a farm. Let they meet, they fall in love. But very quickly, that relationship turns sour. You know, here we have that, that perfect example of coercive control. And I would call it nothing else but coercive control. For this farmer, this young girl, now that she is his wife, is playing a role. And that's all she's playing. She's his role. He seems to get all of his psychological identity through his standing in the community. So from the community perspective, he's the man to go to. He's well liked in the community. He'll solve the problems. But at home, he is a dispassionate husband and he's a loving father, but he's an absent father. All his time is spent out working the land. And again, Rebecca Saunders is just playing that role. And as long as she plays that role of happy wife and mother, there isn't a problem. But try and step outside of that and there is a problem. Speak her own mind. That's not for here. So this is the backdrop. There was also something very revealing in that Rebecca, in an interview or her podcast, talks about this land dispute. So there was a dispute with the neighbour. Again, this to me is very revealing. And she says that this took up all of his waking energy. And he was so consumed by this fight with the neighbour about land. To me, that's critical because what you're seeing here is this rigid thinking style. And now, you know, I'm right, that person is wrong, and I'm going to do everything in my power to prove that I'm right. And it consumes you. So here you have somebody who's now fixated, almost bordering on obsession. So when you look at the parallels there and how he dealt with the land dispute to now how he dealt with the threat, and a lot of these murder suicides are often precipitated or triggered by the threat of the wife or partner leaving. And that's exactly what happened. This young American girl, as she got a bit older, started to realize the controlling relationship she was in, wanted to move back to America with his daughter. But in Martin's mind, you know, this isn't going to happen. This is not how my story is going to end. And this is what precipitates the whole um, point of revenge. So again, This is not somebody who is depressed or anxious. Here you have somebody whose whole thinking is around how am I going to look 
like if she leaves me what's that going to say about me and that is detrimental to his psyche and i would say that's an exact example of this male sexual enti- or this male entitlement that he now felt his daughter is almost his property his wife there's no way i'm going to tolerate her leaving me so what's the solution here i'm going to punish my wife and i'm going to take what she loves most with me and that's an awful thing to say but we need to be able to look and talk about that kind of attitude as well um that that some men have and the key there is we need to start challenging men and women who express kind of views or who are treating people in a way that is just not right um and in Irish society we're st- we only recently have legislation around coercive control. So that's a new phase. But now it's at least when you label something, you can start to look for it and women can start to express it. So you talk to any of the helplines, women's aids, the rape crisis centres, they'd all be very familiar with what women are suffering from in the home and in those kinds of relationships. But this is, you know, this is the worst outcome. So again, that was to me, that's a really interesting case. It wasn't a spur of the moment. He didn't just walk into the water one night in a fit of rage. You know, he it was planned. He knew she wanted to leave. He wrote a letter to her telling her that, haha, by the time you're back, we'll be gone. And so poignantly, where was the wife? She was meeting, I think it was a social worker or somebody to get advice as to how to you know, extricate herself from that marriage. Um, so here you've got, you know, two very, very different scenarios. The end result is the same tragedy, but a very, very different set of processes kind of leading to that point. Wow. What insight. That's extraordinary. That's, an, that, that's fascinating. I, I'm, I'm sure, well, I'm, I don't know, Barry, how are you feeling? No, I say I feel powerless when you, when you hear what that there could have been an intervention at some point in some of these cases, but how do we, where do we start? And how do you get people to come forward? And particularly in rural Ireland, where you've, people are quite isolated. And if you've got somebody coming from abroad, and, and I think that's one of the things that's going to change in Ireland because we're becoming, you know, uh, a, a very diverse society now. So there are people coming in. So Maureen doesn't know everybody in the street anymore. And there's things going on behind closed doors that lots of people don't know about. And it's getting somebody to open that door and come out and say, help, help, I need help in here. Um, it's it's just awful to, to think that somebody could have at some point just sort of stepped in there and said, hang on, just whoa, whoa, let's, let's calm down here. Yeah, it's frightening, frightening. Kira, um, I think Paul and I are just um, starstruck and dumbstruck having listened to you today. It's been marvellous. Um, it's getting a real insight into different a different aspect of the type of work that I've been doing. I've been, I've been working with murders and obviously sort of have seen the murderer allegedly from afar because I see them in the court, but I don't have a, I've never had any more to do with them. But even when we're talking about the murder suicides and um, the profiling. It's just a, a, a marvelous insight into um, a world that we know very little about. But it's something I think that perhaps we should be pushing for um, people like yourself to get more involved in um, dealing with potential cases in in the future. Um, 
hopefully at some point somebody will wave a magic wand and we'll have the the money to cope with uh, increasing all these services, which might help. But in the meantime, I'd just like to thank you very much, Kira, for coming and speaking to us today. I think Paul and I have learned a lot and... Um, Perhaps um, we'll be checking that uh, list of the the 20 things that mark you out as being a psychopath. And um, possibly if we maybe maybe if we keep it under 10 positives, we might be doing okay, and we can look forward to a healthy future. But um, once again, thank you so much, Kira, for taking time out of your busy life. And um, I think you'll probably find that um, when you when your course starts again, uh, your your next recruits will be sitting there in the front row listening to you avidly so thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us today thank you you're very welcome it's been my pleasure thank you you've been listening to life and death with me dr mary cassidy this podcast is brought to you by go loud produced by jason ford and rosie putnam from mabel productions edited by rosie and with music by sasha putnam presented by me and Paul Carson. Next week, we'll be talking to Joan Dean, Vice Chair of Advocates of Victims of Homicide, discussing the far-reaching effects of homicide on families and friends.